everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Awesome Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today is part four of our series on local climate action. And we're going to be talking about energy again. But this time, we're going to focus on non-municipally owned utilities, and something called energy democracy. A term that's pretty new to me, and that, no surprise, I am very into. (laughs) Okay, so just as a little recap, when it comes to climate, our two biggest sources of emissions are energy and transportation. So if you care about climate, you definitely want to focus on how to reduce and eventually eliminate emissions from these two sources. And a few episodes ago, we talked about how to reduce emissions at municipally owned utilities like Austin Energy. And these are utilities that the public has a pretty good amount of control over because they're often governed by elected officials that you can vote in or out of office, and they host public meetings before making major decisions. But the majority of Texans and Americans don't live in cities with municipally owned utilities. Most people live in places where private companies run the utilities, which makes them a bit harder to influence and makes it a little harder for the average climate-loving citizen to take action. But that doesn't mean there's no way to do it. In fact, there are lots of amazing people all over the state who have figured out all kinds of ways to make these privately owned electric utilities more eco-friendly or to create alternatives to them altogether. And that's who we're going to hear from on today's show. First up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Luke Metzger. Luke is the executive director of Environment Texas, a statewide environmental advocacy organization. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. All right, I'm here with Luke and I'm excited to talk to you because, well, one, I know that you do a ton of policy (laughs) advocacy work all over the state of Texas. And, you know, I really want to be able to share with the public and share with folks how they can get more engaged, how they can become more effective advocates for climate action, both in Austin, but also if you're living in a, in another city um, in Texas and, and different ways to do it. So I, I want to start with energy because um, that's, a, that's a big one, right? How, how can we, what kind of policies can we be pushing for as, as citizens or residents of different cities across the state uh, to lower emissions? And I know that you all just, uh, the reason I reached out to you, because I, I saw that you just published this Texas Shining Cities report, um, which goes over solar adoption in big cities, well, across the country, and then um, highlighting ones in Texas as well. So maybe we can start there. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, cool. So um, in that report, you know, you're, you're highlighting a, a whole bunch of cities and, and great work they're doing, and maybe you can chime in and share examples for things like that. But, you know, if you're thinking about a regular resident, you know, the first kind of policy recommendation I see you have on there is that local government should set a goal for 100% renewable energy. And so what does that look like? Are, are you sitting like city councils are passing resolutions that are saying, okay, we're going to set a goal by this timeline, we want 100% renewable energy. What does a goal mean? Yeah, goals are really important to help, um, you know, activate, you know, a city, you know, uh, staff to figure out how to achieve the goal, right? And, um, and we've uh, many times seen that, you know, when a city sets a goal, um, that it spurs 
uh, innovation and spurs investment and you know spurs action um, that uh, leads to big success. You know, so if you just look at the statewide level, you know Texas set a goal um, to achieve 10,000 megawatts of renewable energy by the year 2025. That was a, a goal they passed uh, back in 2005. And uh, turned out, you know, that spurred a you know, renewable energy boom uh, in West Texas of, you know, wind and solar that, you know, we hit that goal a decade ago, right? And now we have many times over um, the, uh, the original goal than we, than we set. And so that's the power of goal setting. Um, and, and yes, many cities around the country have set goals, you know, to uh, achieve 100% renewable energy, not just for city buildings, um, like Austin did a few years ago, you know, our, all of our city buildings are signed up for the Austin Energy's Green Choice Program. Um, so city buildings are 100% renewable energy, but all but every building, you know, in, in a community. And um, so, for example, I think, um, you know, uh, Georgetown, you know, um, famously, and then Denton, you know, um, both those communities, you know, um, you know set goals and, and achieved um, you know, 100% renewable energy in, in, in various ways. Um, and so that, that is absolutely something that, you know, communities, um, you know, and climate activists, I would encourage um, to do because we do know that, you know, energy is one of the largest, um, if not the largest, depending on the community, source of greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, communities can, um, you know, if you're in Austin where we're, um, own our own municipal utility, we have a lot of control, a lot of power over what kind of uh, energy we get. Um, we do also have the complicating factor that we're, you know, tied up in the, you know, the Fayette coal-fired power plant and LCRA won't let us um, quit it. Uh, and so that, that makes Austin's uh, aspirations to get to 100% renewable energy more challenging. But of course, there's a lot of great groups that continue to press the city to try and find a way to ultimately, you know, get us out of that coal contract and let us, you know, ultimately get to 100% renewable energy. Right. Um, other communities um, like Houston um, already do 100% renewable energy for their city buildings. Um, so a lot of good precedents around the state, uh, but more to be done. Yeah, I want to break that down a bit because I, I, I want to make sure we're explaining folks or providing resources for folks who live in different kinds of places. So one is, uh, Places like Austin, San Antonio as well, right? We have publicly owned electric utilities. Um, us as residents have a lot more power over what is happening at those electric utilities. Our city council is able to dictate to Austin Energy and say, hey, we set this renewable energy goal, which is what we've done as a community over and over. Um, do you, I can't remember off the top of my head what our current uh, electricity, renewable energy goal is for the city of Austin. 65% renewable by 2027. Okay. Yeah. And so we're able to easily, you know, more easily set those. So if you live in a city that has a publicly owned utility, that might be a straightforward way to go, go towards it, you know, go towards your city council and try and encourage them to set goals for the electric utility. If you live in a city that doesn't own their own electric utility, what are your options there? It seems a little more complicated. I guess one we mentioned, which is at least getting the city to change all of its city-owned buildings that it has direct control of to 100% renewable energy. And that's probably what usually done by purchasing, encouraging the city yeah. to purchase renewable energy for it. Exactly. So they'll sign a contract to, like in the case of Houston, 
Um, they signed a contract to get power from a solar farm out in West Texas. Um, and um, the city of Farmers Branch, which is a suburb of Dallas, just recently committed to build a solar farm on an old landfill that's going to um, directly power all of their municipal operations. So that's a you know, much more closer to home kind of uh, investment. Other communities like Dallas will purchase what are called renewable energy credits. Um, so that's not a direct contract for um, uh, for renewable energy, but on the market, they're you know purchasing their credits um, that allow them to claim their 100% renewable energy. That that's less. Um, effective in, in incentivizing renewable energy. It's it's fine. I heard, I talked to a city energy purchaser recently that described it as kind of um, bronze, silver, and gold mm -hmm. metal um, kind of um, program. A bronze metal would be the city just purchases renewable energy credits. That's pretty good. A silver metal would be they sign a, a, a power purchase agreement to directly contract with a solar farm, say out in West Texas. And then the gold metal would be contracting for the solar farm right in the community um and yeah, because you know then you get a lot of environmental benefits by avoiding the long transmission you know um, the, the energy losses you get from transporting energy over transmission lines long distances so so that would definitely be the best for a community but then in addition to the city buildings you know we also want to get um, all the homes and businesses in the city to go 100% uh, renewable energy. And so uh, we wrote a report last year that um, demonstrated that cities in the deregulated electric market, so cities like Houston and Dallas, um, could um, do a bulk purchase of renewable energy on behalf of residents. And so um, basically and by providing a public option for electricity. Um, right now, if you live in Houston, you can choose from TXU or Reliant or Green Mountain Energy. And so then this would say, you know, as a, another option would be the Houston Solar Program. And so then you could uh, contract to get your electricity uh, from a you know, solar farm in Houston uh, instead of one of the you know, oh. other traditional electric providers. And so the uh, current law allows for that to happen. And we've been encouraging cities to kind of start such a project. Um, no city in Texas has done it yet. And so um, if people watching uh, are in Houston or Dallas, um, please contact us, you know, because we would love to um, help get some more citizen action into uh, city councils to get someone to do this. Okay, that's a great option. So if 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 people are living in a different in a city like that, and, and in Texas, those, you know, most popular cities are places like Dallas and Houston, where again, you don't have a publicly owned utility. The way it works in Texas is you get to choose your utility, who you want to buy power from, um, environment, Texas, because you you all have an idea that you'd love to, to work on there. So people could get in, in contact with you all and help do some organizing around that effort. Okay, cool. Exactly. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I have not heard of that program. Is that something you've seen anywhere else in the U.S.? Yeah. So elsewhere in the country, it's called community choice aggregation, and a community will basically um, uh, sign up the whole city, you know, to purchase electricity from you know a renewable energy plan. And so uh, it's kind of an opt-out model in other parts of the country. In Texas, we don't have a law specifically authorizing community choice aggregation. Um, so, but we do have, um, cities are allowed to become aggregators. Um, it gets real kind of wonky and complicated. 
um, but it's an opt-in model. So cities would, you know, say, send a mailing to everybody in their, um, in their city saying, hey, we just started this Houston solar program. If you'd like to join, you know, we think we can get you cheaper, cleaner energy than what you're currently getting, because um, we're going to all collectively get five or 10,000 of us to purchase electricity together. And by doing that bulk purchase, we're able to negotiate a cheaper electricity rate and we're able to negotiate for actual renewable energy investments instead of just buying um, power off of the, the grid, most of which would still be you know, pretty dirty. Interesting. So when you say work together, it could even be like Dallas working with neighboring, I don't know a lot of the communities in Dallas, but maybe some of the other smaller cities in the yeah. Dallas area, and they could all work together to provide this for residents, not just within Dallas city limits, but throughout exactly. the metroplex yeah. or Dallas with Coppell and Plano and, you know, Fort Worth, you know, all, all, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. So you have kind of those, those two big headline options, um, you know, publicly owned, get your city council to set a goal, um, you know, privately owned, you potentially can have this community aggregation option and, you know, just encouraging the municipal municipality to switch to hundred percent. What other things can, what other policies are out there that, uh, citizens could be advocating for in order to reduce emissions in their cities? Yeah. Well, at the state level, you know, the public utility commission right now is, still kind of deciding what our electric market should look like in the wake of winter storm Uri, you know, in order to uh, boost resilience um, and, you know, reliability of the electric grid. We know that, you know, um, there are a lot of um, good policies that are both good for the environment, but also help reliability. So investing in energy efficiency, right? So we reduce the demand for electricity in the front in the front end that means there's need for less supply and less dependence on supply so energy efficiency battery storage local rooftop solar kinds of programs demand response lots of different kinds of programs so the public utility commission right now is deciding like you know um you know what are we going to um require electric companies to invest in and so uh so for example again you know in the houston area you know center point is the big utility there and they are subject to regulation by the public utility commission and uh, they currently under a state law are required to invest a little bit of money in energy efficiency and and that provides um you know for example a rebate or a uh, money for, to someone to weatherize their home or to install, you know, more efficient appliances, you know, those kinds of programs come from Centerpoint because of the state law, the Public Utility Commission has the power to require those utilities to do even more. And so I think advocating for the Public Utility Commission to invest in energy efficiency and not attack renewables, um, right, you know, after um, the blackouts, you know, we saw Governor Abbott and others, you know, uh, falsely blame wind power for being, you know, the, the reason for the blackouts really uh, turned out methane gas failures were the overwhelming responsibility. Um, but there are still, you know, some people that are uh, trying to penalize renewable energy and make them pay new fees. Um, so advocating to the PUC saying, you know, don't attack renewables, you should be in supporting renewables and efficiency. Um, and then at the federal level, you know, we, we know still, of course, that Congress is considering, um, you know, a uh, package of clean energy tax incentives. Um, so um, the House of Representatives last fall passed the Build Back Better Act, which included um, $500 billion in incentives for clean energy. Um, that bill is you know, effectively dead right now in the Senate. 
but there are you know some senators including joe manchin um, that have uh, looking to find some sort of package that would include those climate investments and you know this is our one shot you know likely for for years to come you know maybe for a decade to get congress to make a huge investment in climate and clean energy and so this is our best chance and so really critical to, for people to contact their members of congress and say get it done you need to invest in climate yeah, I, I know that so many climate activists were so disappointed um, when it seemed like other plans had fallen apart. But it's interesting to hear that there's something that's being pulled out of that that could still potentially, potentially. You know, this is it, it's got to happen basically in the next month or so. I think right. you know, is, is is the conventional wisdom. So now is a great time to be contacting members and making mm-hmm. sure that they realize this is a priority. You've got to get it done. Yeah, I want to highlight some other local actions um, that you all have recommended as far as advancing renewable energy in cities. And and some of them has to do with like ordinances and things. And I think this is something a lot of folks maybe aren't familiar with or wouldn't think about. But there are, you know, local rules that can sometimes implement, you know, impede people's ability to just get solar panels on their own roof, like homeowners associations and things like that. Um, and there's also, I guess, the opportunity for cities to pass zoning ordinances or rules saying, hey, if you're going to build a new home in our city, it has to have solar panels on it or it has to be solar panel ready. Right. So that um, it'd be very easy to install solar panels on it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a number of communities, um, including Austin, that have these kind of solar ready um, standards, uh, Austin, Houston, Louisville, um, which is a DFW um, suburb. Um, you know, have these things that say to, to home builders, you know, that you have to either install solar panels or build it in a way that makes it easy to add solar later. Um, because there's just basic things like which way is the roof facing, right? If it's, you know, facing the Southwest, that's, you know, ideal for solar. And, um, you know, are, are, do you have the wiring in place that allows it to easier, you know, more easily hook up the solar panels? So you don't have to completely you know, remodel the house to, to do the wiring. So there's a lot of simple things or on a commercial building, making sure that on the roof, you just leave some space for solar panels in the future. You don't put all the HVAC equipment willy nilly all over the roof. So it doesn't allow for solar panels to be easily added later. Um, and so it's like, it's like, a lot of these things are pretty simple. It's just a matter of like planning ahead of time. Um, and so, um, you know, and then in addition to solar ready requirements, there's also just solar mandates. And that's something that California and other places have considered um, to just require all new buildings to have solar panels on them. Um, and, you know, that's, um, you know, we know that solar, uh, while it's a higher kind of upfront cost, you know, it, it, it will pay for itself over time. And so if we can uh, fold it into a mortgage, um, you know, generally you're going to be saving money from day one because of your reduced electricity costs. And so it makes sense to be, you know, building solar into every new home. Um, the politics of that certainly are a little tougher in Texas than they are in California, but um, that's certainly something we should be aspiring to. Yeah, I, I hadn't been aware of that. And I saw in your report, you know, it says in 2020, new building codes took effect in California, requiring new single family homes and multifamily homes of up to three stories to install solar PV panels. Um, so, you know, obviously that could, that could have a huge impact as, as people right. continue to grow and develop that. That's kind of a standard feature you would include in a home. Um, 
just exactly. like you might have an air conditioning unit or whatever. You exactly. Know? Right. Right. This is just, you know, we need to think differently about how we're building homes. Like a lot of the, uh, you know, hundred years ago, you know, you didn't uh, have air conditioning or you didn't have, um, you know, water heater or some of these things. Right. And these are just new, uh, newer technologies, similar to those that we should just be um, doing as a matter of course in, in new home construction. Yeah. I want to highlight one other energy thing, which is community solar. Um, and, and community solar seems like it looks and feels different in different places, but the idea would be, um, an opportunity for what, like people who are maybe living in an apartment complex or maybe don't own their home or living in a place where the roof isn't right, that they could come together in theory, kind of, and, and all get to enjoy the benefits of a solar panel. Is this something that can be done in communities that both have a publicly owned and don't have a publicly owned utility? Like, how are you seeing this, uh, work in the real world. Yeah. Well, so in Austin, we have a community solar farm, the La Loma um, solar facility in East Austin that people can subscribe to. Um, and, and that was built by Austin Energy. That was built by Austin Energy. Exactly. So that's a municipally owned utility. And then in Houston, which is not a municipally owned utility, there's an effort to build a solar farm on top of an old landfill, the Sunnyside landfill. And um, it's going to be, I think, about 52 megawatts, 50 megawatts. They're just going to sell onto the to the grid to you know um, in kind of wholesale power but then two megawatts they want to be a community solar project where they will um you know yeah people who live in apartments or others will subscribe to get their energy specifically from this facility and um they're um uh, they're still working to um figure out how to make that work. And so I think the Houston project still needs some help to make sure that it actually goes through. Um, but they're definitely demonstrating that it's possible. And um, so you could do it, you know, it, I think in any community. And that was Luke Metzger. And just as a refresher there, uh, the two reports Luke mentioned are called Shining Cities 2022 and Cleaner, Cheaper Power for Texas Communities. We'll provide links to both of those in the show notes. And if you're interested in advocating for community choice aggregation in your city, you can reach out to Environment Texas by sending an email to info at environmenttexas.org or luke at environmenttexas.org. So what you just heard from that interview were a lot of great policy recommendations from Luke. But what if your utility isn't really interested in these kinds of policies? And what if you're meeting a lot of resistance when advocating for clean energy policies in your community? That's where my next guests come into play. Now we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Hannah Mitchell and Yesenia Rivera. They both work at a nonprofit organization called Solar United Neighbors that helps people advocate for renewable energy. Hannah is the program director for Solar United Neighbors of Texas, and Yesenia is the director of energy equity and inclusion for Solar United Neighbors. Let's give that interview a listen. Okay, I am here with um, Yesenia and Hannah from Solar United Neighbors, and I'm really excited to talk with you all today because I um, really want to get into a little bit more of what what can we do as, you know, regular people <laughs> who care about climate and, and want to transition to a more renewable energy supply. So, um, Hannah, let's start with you. I, I I learned about Solar United Neighbors just like, you know, Googling around on the internet. And I was looking up different solar projects that are happening in Austin and your group's name, I mean, not in Austin, but in Texas and your group's name kept popping up. So let's just start at the beginning. What is Solar United Neighbors? What do you all do? 
Yeah, so Solar United Neighbors is a national nonprofit, and we have state-based programs and staff on the ground uh, in about a dozen states. And we help people join together, go solar, and fight for their energy rights. So in Texas, this looks like organizing um, bulk buy programs that we call solar co-ops. And that really helps uh, bring down both the hassle and the cost of installing rooftop solar for people um, across Texas. We also work on solar policy issues at the local, state, and, um, and Solar United Neighbors and does at the national level as well. Um, and we build a community of solar supporters. So that is what all we do in Texas. Yeah, I, I want to talk about these solar co-ops or group buys because I think this is such an interesting idea. So the concept, right, is that like, you know, it can be still fairly expensive. You know, there's an upfront cost, especially to perhaps one person putting solar panels on their roof. But could we make it cheaper if, you know, a group of us in one community all got together to buy solar? Is that is that explain the program? Yeah, you got it exactly right, Amy. So similar to anything that you buy in bulk, um, we organize people in a similar geographic area. So it could be the size of a city. In some instances, it's the size of a couple of neighborhoods, but usually we go city or countywide. Um, who are all interested in getting solar for their home or their small business um, or their nonprofit institution in some cases around the same time. And so their United Neighbors helps with this process by um, facilitating public information sessions. We've been doing them on Zoom for the past couple of years um, to provide consumer facing information without a sales pitch about solar specifically solar in Texas, which can be really difficult to navigate given our electricity market. Um, and we also facilitate a competitive bidding process. So once we get a large enough group together, our, our minimum, I guess, critical mass is about 30 people before we'll issue a bid. We keep growing the group as much as possible, but around 30 people, we will issue um, a bid. Sorry, we will issue a RFP, a request for proposals to solar installers um, who sign up for our notifications. Um, and that way companies can bid on the group. And um, ultimately, it is up to the people who are getting these installations, so the co-op members, to select the installer to serve them with um, the technical support of Solar United Neighbors or, or SUN along each step of the process. Um, so we are an installer neutral organization, um, and we're really just dedicated to helping people navigate this process of, of going solar. Right. And the solar is still on each individual person's roof, right? It's just the idea exactly. is that you're in a co-op because you got to get this group discount by all buying together. Yeah. So each group, once an installer is, is selected, each co-op member will receive a personalized offer at the same group rate um, with the same products available that everyone is being presented with. And uh, it's really up to each individual to say, hey, you know what, this is, uh, this has been an informative process, but it's not for me or heck yes, I want this. Um, I'm going to sign on the line and, uh, and get an installation through the installer that the group selected. 
Yeah. And so let's talk some examples of this. I know, um, are you all working on a project like this right now in El Paso, right? Because we, on a previous episode of this podcast, we talked to um, some of the community organizers out there in El Paso with Sunrise El Paso, and and they're working on a climate charter and all these initiatives. And I think some of those folks said they're also been working with you all to get a um, one of these co-ops going as too. Yeah, so we've run, um, let's see, we've launched about 13 different co-ops in different parts of the state. Um, we've primarily focused on the deregulated electricity market just because it's so, it can be so challenging for people um, there who are faced with so many different retail electricity providers to figure out how their solar system interacts with their utility bill. Um, and yes, we are currently working on um, a solar co-op in partnership with Sunrise El Paso and Eco El Paso and the city of El Paso to run a solar co-op um, in El Paso. Cool. And so let's, I want to break down some of the words you've been saying here, because I think our electricity market is extremely confusing for people. <laughs> okay. So like, let's give, let's give like a, a high level um, overview. I'm sure you have to explain this a lot when you're doing your solar co-op work. Like what is a deregulated market? How does Texas's electricity market work? And, and what about it makes it then difficult for uh, people who are interested in solar? Yeah, so um, as people, I, as many people across the state suddenly realized in February of 2021, Texas is its own electricity grid. And so within Texas, you have... Um, a deregulated electricity market that is driven essentially, I'm painting in broad bus brush strokes, but um, it's driven by electricity supply and demand. Um, and this, this type of electricity market is, is what serves uh, about two thirds of um, electricity consumers in the state. And so if you live in the greater, I'm just gonna, it, uh, throw out some geographies, but say if you live in the greater DFW area or the greater Houston area, chances are that you have to pick and choose a retail electricity provider to, to serve you with electricity at your home. So you have a choice from, you know, over a hundred different uh, companies that will uh, provide you with electricity and you pay your bill to this retail electricity provider. So this is complicated uh, when you choose to install solar because many people don't know, okay, well, which retail electricity provider should I choose um, that will complement my solar system? And there's a handful of retail electricity providers in the, in the deregulated market that will provide customers with credit on their bill for the excess generation, so the extra electricity that your solar system pushes back out onto the grid. Um, and so Solar United Neighbors uh, helps make that process of selecting, <clears throat> excuse me, selecting an installer easier through a partnership with Texas Power Guide, where um, we will actually uh, provide individual reports to solar owners or prospective solar owners, um, looking at their uh, electricity consumption, how much electricity they've been using historically, as well as how much electricity and when their solar system 
system will be producing or has been producing electricity to help them find um, a retail electricity provider to match their solar system for the budget of the thing, right? It's like, if you're a homeowner and you're thinking about getting solar on your roof, obviously it makes more economic sense for you if you're able to sell back some of your energy. Yes. So um, your solar system's production is going to follow the patterns of the sun. So you will, um, you know, if you're away at work or school during the day and you're not using that electricity right at the time where your system is producing it, your, your system is going to send that, that uh, electricity out onto the grid to be used by your nearest neighbors. Um, and if you are able to earn credit on your bill for that excess generation, that um, is a key component of uh, of of your um your of your buyback sorry of your return on investment is the ability to to put that electricity out onto the grid and receive that bill credit um the rest of the state is served by um, municipally owned utilities such as austin energy such as cps in san antonio we also have um, rural electric cooperatives, and Texas is home to the largest rural electric cooperative in the state. Um, and then we also have a couple of vertically integrated or investor-owned utilities, and those are utilities that own both um, the generation of the electricity, so the power plants, as well as the, um, the distribution lines, the poles and the wires and the billing service. So they um, provide you with the electricity bill and you pay them directly. And so those vertically integrated utilities, um, one is in El Paso, another is uh, north of Houston, or I guess northeast of Houston, Energy Service Territory. Um, so we really, any type of utility structure you can name, we have it in Texas. Right. And some of that is just because like we deregulated our market. I can't remember when now, but a lot of things were grandfathered in. That's why we kind of have a patchwork system. Yes, we unbundled our electricity system in the 90s. Um, and exactly that is why we have a patchwork of a, a variety of different utility structures. Got it. And so you all are really focusing on that deregulated market, which again is a lot of Texans. Um, we talked about El Paso. I want to talk about a really interesting project. I know it's still in the early stages, but that's happening in Sunnyside in Houston, um, because this one is um, solar. And it's also, I think, a really strong you know, environmental justice project as well. My understanding is that it's at a location that had been um, maybe a landfill site or, or tell us more about that project. Yeah, so um, the, uh, let me start with just a, a description of what community solar is. So community solar, uh, also known as shared solar, is where you buy electricity generated um, by an array that is located close to where people are consuming the electricity but is not necessarily on top of your home. So this is a way for people who um, don't own their home or have a home that's unsuitable to put solar on top of it. For example, they might have a bunch of trees or the roof might not be, uh, might be either very complicated or uh, structurally just not suitable for solar 
if it needs to be replaced. Um, so this is a way for um, people to participate in locally generated power without, um, without having it directly on top of their home. Um, and so Solar United Neighbors is is supporting the Sunnyside Community Solar Initiative through um, sharing information about the project as it progresses. And we'll be ramping that up um, as soon as the development phase has, has concluded. But um, the idea is to have locally generated power um, at the site of a formal of a former landfill that was closed uh, and never remediated in the 70s. Um, and so uh, there's both a 50 megawatt utility scale portion of the project, as well as a two megawatt uh, community solar portion of the project. Yeah. So what we're talking about here, so we have the difference between community solar, which is, you know, one singular array, array in a central location that the community can buy into um, versus the co-op model, which is still the solar panels are on everyone's individual roof. Um, but what I think is interesting about the Sunnyside program um, in particular is, you know, I, I think solar has this reputation a little bit of being kind of a thing for richer people, right? It's like, you know, it, it costs, the prices have come down a lot, but it's like something you would install on your own roof. You know, you have, that implies you own a home, that implies you have the money to put this up there. And, and with th these kind of community solar projects and some of these more innovative things, it seems like you're really offering an opportunity to, to um, open up a lot of access to this for more people. Yeah, absolutely. So as you named, the cost of solar has come down dramatically, especially in the past 10 years, but it frequently requires either um, upfront capital or access to financing, which means that you have to have, you know, a, a good credit score in order to get that loan. Um, or, uh, and, and of course, as you named, you, you have to own a home or own some property. And so with, uh, with community solar and um, Sun, uh, I guess, looks at community solar as something that is direct benefits back to the community. So I, in I think that the term community solar gets misused a fair amount. So um, in our view, community solar is something that directs benefits back to the community in um, in bill savings. Um, and ideally in a pathway to ownership of the project. But that, that bill savings component is really important because um, some large utility scale projects that call themselves community solar are offering um, these subscriptions in the project at a premium, which doesn't actually translate into bill savings for people. Um, so we wanna see bill savings for folks uh, and the ability to just be able to pay for this on your electricity electricity bill without um, having to, to have that upfront capital um, or access to financing. Yeah. And I think this might be a good time to bring Yesenia into the conversation as well. I, I want to talk about how this actually happens, you know, in the real world. Um, maybe we can start with Houston and then I, I want to talk about the Energy Democracy Project in particular, uh, which is um, I'm so excited to bring up. But let's talk more about specifically what's happening in Houston. You know, how 
how did this come to be? You know, a big thing of what we try and do at the Austin Common is share, like how do residents take more control of their communities? How do residents get involved in, in this work? And my understanding is, you know, the residents of the Sunnyside neighborhood have been fairly active in this process. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how this came about? Yeah, so the Sunnyside Community Energy Group is really instrumental in um, directing uh, the conversation about how the project uh, can and should benefit the residents of the Sunnyside community. Um, the project came about when there was a call for innovative projects um, that the city put out. And so their um, Wolf Energy, which is a a solar developer, as well as uh, in partnership with um, South Union CDC that uh, is located in Sunnyside, put forward a project proposal to um, have a utility scale and a community solar project on this uh, on this landfill in Sunnyside. Um, so that's how the project was started. And so I would say if there are ever opportunities, um, and even if there aren't opportunities, but um, if, if people put out requests to their local elected officials that they want more um, solar in their communities, that they want local solutions um, to climate change and to clean air to be generated within their communities, that's, all, that's always a good starting point to, um, to generate solutions such as this. Yeah, and that group that you mentioned, is that like a resident group? Sunnyside Community Energy Group. Yes, it yeah. is a resident group. Awesome. So they got together and organized and are helping to steward this process. And obviously, we know that there are resources available um, that um, you all have there at Solar United Neighbors, and we'll be sure to share those. And, and one in particular research I want to talk about, Yesenia, bring you in here, is this Energy Democracy Project. Um, I, I was saying earlier, before we got on air, I was I was reading, looking through the website and came across this and like almost screamed out loud. I was so excited to see this exist. Um, I'm a big like zine person also and guide book person. And I feel like this just hits all my boxes. So let, let's give people a high level overview. Like what is this energy democracy project and this toolkit um, uh, that you guys created? What is it called? Oh yeah, People's Utility Justice Playbook. So the Energy Democracy Project is basically a group of energy democracy practitioners across the country from all the way out in New England to Alaska. And our focus is to come together as a group and share resources to help advance energy democracy, community ownership projects like the ones in Houston, and just put the power back in the hands of the people and have community-based energy systems instead of uh, utility-owned energy systems. And um, we got together, I think it was 2019, for the first time we had our, our convening and we kept, it kept coming back to the table that, you know, the utilities were using the same playbook against us each and every time. Like they shared resources, they shared tactics. And we said, look, if they have their own playbook, it's time for us to have one of ourselves so that we can fight back against the tactics that we're all seeing so we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. And that's sort of where the People's Utility Justice Playbook came to be. We decided to, to fight back against the utilities and their misinformation, their disinformation campaigns, their different tactics in 
empower advocates across the country in order to do that. So we spent two years interviewing energy democracy advocates, utility advocates, all sorts of experts across the country and distill that into the playbook. We looked at all the tactics the utilities were using against us, like campaign donations, spinning narratives, you know, again, disinformation everywhere. And we, talking to those experts, we sort of distill, okay, so how do you fight back when they're doing all these campaign donations. How do you fat back at the Public Service Commission and sort of gave people a roadmap on, well, if this is a tactic you're seeing, these are some of the things you, do, you can do to fight back. Yeah, mm. and I want to talk about some of those tactics, but first, I feel like it's important. Let's define, like, what does energy democracy mean? How do you, and how do you define that? If you ask uh, 10 people are going to get 10 different answers. (laughs) But for us, energy democracy is, again, about putting the power in the hands of the people. It's people have a right to choose where their energy comes from. And giving them that control to choose where their energy comes from can help them benefit, actually, from their energy sources instead of just paying for utilities. Switch them from consumers to prosumers and empower them to make the decisions over what powers their home, which is why we're so big on solar. Yeah, what I like about this is because you're talking about, um, you know, not just doing things that you know can help the climate and are are crucial you know we talk a lot about the energy transition is crucial to the climate crisis but also really helping improve people's quality of lives and tying that to things like energy bills and even fossil fuel infrastructure and where that's located and removing some of those dirty infrastructure you know dirty power plants from vulnerable neighborhoods and so it's not just about the like climate aspect it's also like helping people pay their bills yeah, it, it's all about who has the power in switching the dynamic and making sure the community actually has a voice on how their power is generated, where it comes from, because whoever has control over that has control over the benefits and who gets the benefits. And right now, our system is set up in such a way that it's mostly the investor-owned utilities and, and the utility and the stakeholders that are earning the benefits, not the community. Yeah. And I, I want to talk in particular, there's a, the whole bunch in this uh, playbook, and we'll share the link in the show notes, but um, about some of the key things in there. And, you know, one of them was, as far as tactics they use, like you mentioned, is that utilities make energy decisions inaccessible. And, and I feel like this is a big one, right? Like most of us really have no idea what's happening at our electric utility. Can, can we talk more? Let's talk some about that tactic and, and how people fight back against that one. Because at the Austin Common, that's like a big thing of what we try and do is make government more decisions more accessible. And so I was drawn to this one immediately. Uh, sure. Um, that is a very common one. And what you'll see is they'll hold these meetings and hearings at times where the public really does not have the capacity to be there. For example, here in DC, we were going over grid modernization. And there were a series of hearings at the Public Service Commission trying to decide what were the next steps. The problem is that those meetings occur in the middle of the day while everybody else was working. So you have a handful of advocates 
in the room versus an army of lawyers and experts for the utility companies because they're paid to be there. That's their day job. And the folks that have the experience that are bearing the brunt of these systems can't take the time off of work to be at those hearings to influence uh, the decision-making protocol. Not only do they hold them at times and places that we don't have access to or can't really make it, but they also shroud it in a lot of technical terms and language that it's really hard for everyday folks to understand. You know, like they, they make it sound so complicated that it really just scares folks away from having an input and in, in, in having a say in those decisions. Yeah, and, and you know, another thing that you touch on in, in the playbook here is we talk about just things that our utilities are doing. And one is this problem that I see come up a lot, which is a lot of utilities might say they have a climate plan. A lot of utilities might say that they have a goal to be carbon free by a certain year, but um, a lot of studies are being done that show that's not true, or they're, they're not actually doing anything to meet those goals. Uh, talk a little bit more about that and kind of like where what you're starting to see and, and how people can learn more about what their utility is actually up to. Yeah, um, we've seen them try, like again, they're trying to control the narrative. They see the writing in the wall, people are pushing for this transition, people are pushing for clean energy and the utility is like, oh, don't worry, we'll get you there. We're going to be the ones providing that service. We're going to transition to wind. We're going to transition to solar. We're going to use hydro. Uh, but when you actually look at their books, you look at the mix of energy, you see that those numbers remain relatively uh, small in some cases. Now, some of them are building these huge solar farms, these utility-scale solar. A problem, again, is who benefits from that? Because it's not necessarily the community, it's the utility and their investors that are benefiting from that. So even if they do go towards renewable, even if they do go towards these large scale solar farms, again, they're cutting out the benefits for the community. They're keeping the benefits for themselves. So you have to be very careful with looking at their mix and what it is they're using to, to generate the power and how they're doing it. And bottom line, who's benefiting from that? Right. And it seems like a lot of what you talk about in the guidebook, you know, I, I think for so many people, just the idea of all this is so overwhelming. And there are so many examples of it not working. <laughs> and people feel knocked down. But it seems like a lot of what you're, you get out of this guidebook is really this idea of coalition building and movement building, and that it can't just be like you signing a petition or you going to city hall alone or not city hall, but you know, to these corporate meetings. Like, what do you see? Obviously you list in here a lot of very specific strategies, but like big overarching strategy. Let's talk about like the key, the, the importance of really having a community behind this effort. Yeah, uh, I would say, Bama, you can't fight this on their terms. If you're fighting using their language, if you're fighting them in their turf, you've already lost the fight. So, uh, but coalition building is key. You, you need to have a diverse, broad coalition. Otherwise, you know, it, it's gonna, they're, they're gonna try to play you off. It's like, oh, you're just, you know, you're too far left. You're too out there. Nobody else agrees with you. You're on your own on this one. 
but just getting that diverse coalition and finding that common ground, finding that intersectionality and leaning on it is key because they're gonna try to divide you. They, they divide and conquer, that is their MO. Uh, we were trying to pass a bill for solar ready homes and even though we had clean energy advocates on board, you had solar advocates on board, the uh, Association of Builders was very much opposed to the bill. What they did is they uh, went to housing advocates, they went to tenant advocates and made them believe that, oh no, if you agree to this bill, you're basically claiming affordable housing. There will be no chance for affordable housing. So they really just splintered us into two camps and they were able to kill the bill. And then when another uh, clean energy bill came along, we had learned from that. So we started building coalition ahead of time and sort of came with, okay, these are our, this is the bottom line. These are the lines that we will not cross and agreed on a message as a coalition and move forward and push it that way. So then when they tried again to divide us on whether it was affordable housing or, or other issues, we're like, no, we've already talked through this and we've agreed on a message and in a campaign and we're gonna move forward with this. And we're able to pass a bill to, besides the utilities trying to splinter us because we had already seen how other industries had done that and stepped in and worked as a coalition and build that trust and that connection in that intersectionality across the movements. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about Austin. We, we have a municipally owned utility, so we have the luxury of, you know, if we want our electric utility to transition to renewable energies and do it in a specific way, we can go to city council and, and pass that bill. But it seems like for a lot of these investor-owned utilities, deregulated market people that live in other places, a lot of the action perhaps is happening in like state legislation and, and doing things that are kind of mandating that all utilities um, that exist throughout the entire state follow certain rules or adopt certain renewable energy standards. That's kind of the the mode of a lot of action, right? Is that accurate yeah. or? No, it is. Uh, Hannah, you were going to say something? I would say the Public Utilities Commission too. That is is usually the venue at which those decisions take place. And ex describe what that is real quick for folks. Yeah, the Public Utilities Commission is uh, made up of three officials that uh, are charged with theoretically regulating the public utilities in Texas. So that include um, telecommunications as well as electricity and water. Right. So that's a statewide uh, it board. It is a statewide board. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's the potential there, I guess, to pass or to get some high level rules that would impact all of these utilities at once, as opposed to, you know, you as a consumer having to like, I don't know, try and put public pressure on one particular, you know, a bunch of individual operators that are functioning throughout the entire state. Yeah, for a lot of states, you'll see that uh, laws being passed at the legislative level or regulations, but it's up to the Public Utility Commission to enforce how those rules are regulated to uh, make sure everybody knows what those rules are and enforce them. And that's where it gets tricky because uh, as you've seen in the playbook, there's a revolving door between those regulators and the utility. It's like they just keep rotating from one side to the other. Uh, so it's really hard for the public to have an impartial uh, 
commissioner at those levels because they have really deep ties to utilities in most cases. Those public utility commissioners are usually appointed by a governor appoint they're not elected positions or some are depends okay. on the state some states you see georgia it's an elected position uh some places it's it's uh it's appointed by the governor okay and so again we'll link to this playbook but before we close i want to you know we've talked some about some of the barriers and some of the strategies to overcome it i want to give share some success stories a bit. <laughs> you know, when you're working on this project in the playbook, you do feature in there some examples, um, case studies of communities that have seen success. Let's highlight one, you know, is one popping to mind? What can we share? Or you can feel free to take a look at the, <laughs> you know, what, what, what can get people a little excited that it's possible, you know, to win? Actually, uh, I'm going to go with one that's not in the playbook, okay. but it's very recent and that used the playbook to get that win. And it's the uh, net metering fight in Florida. Uh, we just had uh, the utilities started campaigning in 2020, trying to kill net metering in Florida. Um, we saw the writing in the wall, we saw it coming. And again, we started building those coalitions and the, those movements to start fighting the disinformation campaign and, and, and to change the narrative. They lost at the public service, public utility level. They couldn't convince the public utility to kill net metering. So they sort of laid in wait. And again, at the end of last year, they started campaigning the Florida legislators to change the law and kill net metering that way. And despite the coalition building, despite um, building and, and bringing people on board from, uh, you know, solar workers to regular folks, it was like the NAACP, it was Vote Solar, it was a very broad coalition of folks working on killing this bill. Uh, I don't think the, the legislators expected as much fight and pushback against it. It was a terrible bill when it began. We were able to get folks out to Tallahassee to protest. Um, it was a huge protest, and this is still in the middle of a pandemic. But we got able, we were able to get folks out there, and so they started compromising on the bill because of the pushback and started grandfathering folks in. It still, it wasn't enough. We, we really, it was a really bad bill, even with the compromises. We weren't able to kill it at that level but again we kept putting pressure on the governor and had a campaign and had our advocates and our supporters reach out to the governor's office about vetoing the bill and why it was a bad bill at the end of the day we actually won because the governor listened to the advocates listened to 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 the people and vetoed the bill got so, it can't give up yeah <laughs> the, and the lesson and describe really quick what is net metering why is that important net metering is a policy of how do you get paid back for the energy your solar is producing so um, in some cases like in florida it's a one-to-one -one. if you're producing whatever your solar system is producing you get credit for that production and uh so if you use if you produce more than what you use, the utility gives you a uh, uh, pays back that extra production. Got it. So this would have bill would have made it so that you couldn't be compensated for that extra solar. You're yeah, they definitely wanted to kill that. So that it it sort of decimates the value of solar. Right. And their argument is always about cost shift, and about saying, well, this is rich people. 
that are installing solar and they're passing on the cost to everybody else. And uh, again, the way we fought that was showing, just switching out the argument, like this wasn't about cost shift, this was about control. Who controls the power and where it comes from? And the utility does not have the right to tell you where your power comes from. Mm -hmm. All right, so the Nelson Mayor never give up. Never give up. <laughs> I like it. Okay, um, I think that's pretty much our time to, for today, but I really appreciate both of you uh, chatting and informing us about solar. And we'll be sure again to share links to everything you mentioned for folks who are interested in learning more. Thank, Thank you. you, Amy. Um, and I just wanted to offer a self-correction. So the PUC is a five member commission, not Got three, it. and they're appointed by the governor. Got it. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you all. Yeah. Thank you all for taking the time. Um, anything, anything else you feel like we didn't discuss or links that I should go that I should direct people to like, if people Hannah, I guess I would want to know from you if there's people out there who live in Texas who are interested in starting like are interested in co ops, what would be yeah. where would you direct them go to? So, um, I can send, we have a, a, a wait list. And so if we get a bunch of people in a certain area of the state that could help trigger generating a co-op in that area, um, if we have you know a bunch of people that sign up, um, solarunitednneighbors.org uh, forward slash Texas is okay. a great way to see where our co-ops, our open co-ops are in the state, as well as where we've done them in the past. Um, and if you don't want to wait for a co-op, we also have a bunch of resources on how to go solar on your own. Um, so solarunitedneighbors.org forward slash Texas, where you can always drop us a line at Texas team at solarunitedneighbors.org. And that was Hannah Mitchell and Yesenia Rivera of Solar United Neighbors. Once again, we'll link everything in the show notes, including the People's Utility Justice Playbook. And if you live in Austin and are interested in getting solar on your rooftop, there are lots of local programs and incentives to help you do just that, which you can learn more about by visiting austinenergy.com. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time as our series about local climate action continues. And next week, we'll be talking all about transportation. I hope you'll join us. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. 
You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band. Thanks for listening. <laughs>